Cavalcade Audio Productions and Mixed Signals Media present Voice from the Void, a podcast about Star Drifter and the Star Drifter universe. I am your host, writer-creator David Collins Rivera, and this is episode 11. Today, we'll be talking about a general area of the galaxy not especially well covered in the books and short stories thus far, namely, frontier space. The big four supernations of the future are home to hundreds of billions of people, to say nothing of the many smaller, independent worlds, fiefdoms, and confederations. Focusing solely on these, though, can give you an incomplete view of humanity. Expansion and emigration have been ongoing since Starjump first became a viable technology. Government-sponsored settlement and exploration programs have come and gone over the years. War and strife have been perennial motivators. Religious pilgrimages have occurred by the thousands. Private organizations, corporate sponsorships, and even military development have all had their day and their impact upon the spread of people across the stars. Many of these operations have occurred simultaneously, and quite a number have resulted in the expansion of the Big Four in all directions. Occasionally, political leaders push their little pet projects, idealistic, even romantic programs, the aims of which were to open new vistas and new opportunities for future generations. These involved speculative survey missions, often in partnership with large companies on the hunt for unclaimed raw materials and exclusive rights to natural resources. Things like this have waxed and waned over the centuries, so much so that no one can say with any accuracy just what might be awaiting the intrepid government census taker out beyond the acknowledged borders of civilization. Are there any viable settlements? Is there any industry to speak of? Could something resembling civilized life be hiding in the mysterious reaches of outer space? Let's go ahead and ask these questions and see what we find. The future galaxy, at least a very tiny part that humans have settled in, is composed of four large supernations, a smattering of smaller associations, confederations, and alliances, and a few regular independent star systems. And that's pretty much it. The majority of people in these nations don't often think about what lies beyond. Large mercantile endeavors operate in settled space, advanced communities, terraformed worlds, and of course Terra itself are found within the recognized boundaries. All of human civilization and history is here. There's still plenty of elbow room and resources, and people are content to live their whole lives within charted star systems and the quiet spaces in between. Well, most are. But inevitably, there are some who long for the far horizons. So it has always been, so it is in the future. 
By Ejok's time, this horizon consists of the furthest boundaries of the shipping lanes, where star-faring vessels can be serviced and fueled, cargo can change hands, commerce can thrive, and colony stations can safely house families and communities that are more or less integrated into the texture of modern society. And yet, some folks do live out there. Explorers, exploiters, and their descendants. And while society might wonder and cluck over the location, condition, or even the very existence of people in the unknown reaches, life does indeed go on in those places, including, surprisingly enough, or not, civilized life. When ecumenical forces rose up in combined rebellion, splitting off from the empire and creating church space, massive numbers of ordinary people were displaced. As the stars were partitioned, billions of refugees fought over religious ideals, racial differences, minor territories, dwindling resources, and long-standing grudges. They migrated, fought, and separated from each other. The carnage, heartbreak, and vast social upheaval of that chaotic period have gone down in history as one of the most sweeping and fundamentally influential events of the star-spanning era. Many hundreds of millions streamed across the Alliance border as refugees, teeming masses whose exodus was well-documented, creating records which have been mined for genealogical and cultural data ever since. Only recently has it come to light that another migration took place at around this same time, one that was, by contrast, recorded rather poorly, being largely ignored by the media and bureaucracies of the day. People moved off into unsettled star systems in thousands of unrelated caravan fleets. Some scholars estimate that upwards of 200 million families became reluctant pioneers, fleeing persecution, destitution, and cultural oblivion. Others debate these numbers, since hard facts are in short supply. Understanding that the training needed to survive in undeveloped star systems was then, and still is, quite specific and far from ubiquitous, large numbers of unskilled people flocked to a small number of specialists and their teams. Naturally, the specialists became the de facto leaders of these desperate souls, with management and later governance mostly reflecting circumstance and personal inclination. Dubbed wagon trains in reference to some obscure period of Terran history, recent historians are just now beginning to study these various peoples from the empire and church space. The convoys of frightened hopefuls formed the backbone of what would later eventually become, only one or two generations later, expansions of established territorial boundaries. The people moved out, and only a short time later, the territories moved out after them, making claims, establishing boundaries, and declaring themselves to be the only legitimate authorities around. For some of the descendants of the original refugees, having lived all their lives in relative freedom, hard-scrabbled though their lives with that freedom might have been, oftentimes existing on the very edge of survival, the outside imposition of authority by what had come to be seen by this time as foreign powers 
was intolerable. A lack of practical infrastructure and unity among homesteaders ensured that no organized resistance to either imperial or papal incursion could occur. Still, there were isolated and ineffectual conflicts and an eventual entrenchment of insurgency within various star systems, none of which accomplished much of anything besides bloodshed, ethno-religious tension, military retaliation, and political disenfranchisement within these rapidly growing communities. Thus it was that the progeny of the first pioneers became ordinary citizens, with various noble and ecclesiastical powers planting their flags and imposing their own versions of law and order. Though nowhere near the number of the first wave, many settlers at this point moved on, out into the black, seeking freedom from political, cultural, and military stresses, with economic hardship adding bitter spice to the drama. The growth and subsumation of small free states and settlements has often been interpreted as the supernations just being their same old expansionist selves. Many recognize, though, that the growth of their power in these areas also brought along education, medicine, and emergency services. Military occupation gradually gave way to modern policing, and as random violence and criminal depredation are always the bedfellows of frontier life, these aspects of civilization were not unwelcome. Understand, most of these settlements were only one or two generations off from the perceived luxury, safety, and general ease of civilization. In such a short time, these things were still known to the elder generations, but they had become near legendary to the younger ones. Civilized star systems were sometimes spoken of in Eden-like terms, with each meal being a banquet, opportunities free-floating through the ether, and the very space lanes being paved in gold. Most frontier populations, therefore, tended to encourage infrastructure, governance, and regular trade as the only practical way to improve the lives of their families, secure their property, and ensure their livelihoods. While independence is a beautiful flame, and a dream many have died for over the centuries since the first human expansion into the stars, many more have been attracted to the simple necessities of clean air, medicine, food on the table, and the safety, whether real or illusory, of regular police patrols. Private, state, noble, and church-owned conglomerates easily supplanted cottage industries with massive commercial endeavors. Business entities that were disciplined with policy, made mighty through efficiency, and protected by incorporation. When the granddaughters and sons of those early settlers found their opportunities dwindling, and their labors producing fewer positive results than the same such did for their parents, star jumping out to the unknown for another fresh start began to look attractive. So, most stayed when supranational authorities moved in, but some moved on. Some of these young souls took to the figurative hills in fits of isolated migration, with a lifetime of experience in homesteading already behind them and the hope for a better future in their hearts. Sometimes they ventured out with little more than a few self-replicating mining, manufacturing, and general use bots, the models of which were laughably outdated back in the Big Four. 
They took pretty big risks, in other words. But this generation of pioneers had a better idea of what they were in for than had the previous, and their success rate reflected that fact. Church space, the Empire, and the Alliance all expanded outward in this manner, with frontier communities becoming new possessions of established domains as the decades passed. It happened again and again. Inevitably, local wars and economic emergencies prompted refugee migrations, most of which moved toward established star systems. But always, there were more than a few aimed at the unknown, riding upon the dream of a new start. Entrepreneurial endeavors in VC startups also fueled expansion, with courier services, supply chains, manufacturing hubs, and retail outlets. Once the repeating sequence of expansion, settlement, incorporation, disenfranchisement was recognized by industry analysts, cheap, widely distributed, all-in-one homesteading packages began to be offered to prospective pioneers, which included such things as exosuits for every member of the family, tools, food and emergency supplies, communication, entertainment, and educational software bundles, water and Atmo production appliances, and much more. Families were encouraged to sign up for subscription packages or take on long-term lease-to-own plans, many of which were little more than usury schemes. They joined millions of like-minded folk, homesteading on asteroids, building artificial structures in deep space, or just performing menial, often grueling work for massive projects that covered such things as the terraforming of choice worlds or the processing of entire star systems dedicated to heavy industry. This went on for years, always just outside the ever-expanding borders of the supernations. This was a hard life. But many wouldn't have changed it for anything, due to a common belief that what they were building out in the cold and dark would be theirs. Property, prosperity, and freedom from governmental dictates, institutionalized debt, racial and religious persecution, and enchaining social pressures. This is a story filled with pioneering and poverty, prayer and sacrifice, courage and despair. Time passed, and progress happened. By the period covered in the novels and stories, at least two dozen independent multi-system associations have come to exist in the so-called frontier space. These, ranging from tiny and obscure outposts to self-declared multi-system nations. One such, situated near the Alliance, is known as the Jensen Kwok Settlers Union. Gen K. Sioux, as it's also known, is comprised of 22 major settlements and growing. The jewel in this particular necklace of hope is Jadan's system, which includes several large communities, including two non-terraformed inner rocky worlds and 13 wholly artificial structures in solar orbit. There are also high docks and rim stays, and small settlements upon various asteroids. The population of Jadan is a mix of the descendants of homesteaders and pirates in roughly equal numbers. Though it was once deep in the black, 
Ain expansion over the decades now places the Gen K Sioux only a couple jumps out from the nearest full member state of the alliance. There's talk in the Ain Senate, in fact, of this union, or at least Jadan on its own, applying for provisional membership in the coming years. Jadan's former, and some say current, status as a pirate haven naturally makes Ain Fleet a bit nervous, with a strongman-style government that includes an executive chief for life and a highly criticized human rights record. Still, Gen K. Sue is far from the wild and woolly outlaw paradise it's said to have once collectively been, implying that social, political, and economic progress has been ongoing if a bit slow. Way over beyond the recognized frontier border of church space is the Darderton Free Republic, 47 settlements and two Tween Star way stations. The Dan, as it's often called by its citizens and others, has an estimated collective of 10 billion inhabitants, some in artificial colonies and some upon a partially terraformed world called Rain in the St. Carta star system. The Darderton Free Republic considers itself to be an independent state, unassociated with church space, except with regards to proximity. A strong separation between religion, politics, and business has been enacted by law there, which, in its fundamentals, is at odds with the customs and edicts of church space. Certain factions within the Dan government have made unofficial overtures to the Alliance of Independent Nations regarding provisional membership. Other groups have approached corporate space in the same way. Considering that having a member state of either of these great foreign powers on its far border would almost certainly be unacceptable to the ruling government of church space, dispassionate observers doubt the Dan will ever be able to join any supernation other than the one that spawned it. Some, in fact, doubt that the Darderton Free Republic will remain either for very much longer. Noble space has been the source of myriad exploration and migration efforts over the years. Dozens of noble families have expanded the empire by creating their own colonies, some of them far from the civilized space lanes. Many of these have failed for one reason or another, but a surprising number have become prosperous, sending back raw materials by the gigaton, feeding the manufacturing beast of imperial industry the empire, largely following the blueprint of previous conquering civilizations, has enjoyed more sanctioned and therefore officially recognized success in its colonizing efforts compared to the other supernations. Legions of worker bots, cargo drones, and dedicated AIs gather raw materials and perform basic processing, while human workers establish the infrastructure for economically strategic shipping routes. These settlements and space lanes were claimed and exploited by wealthy noble families and mercantile classes so that mining, refinement, manufacturing, and reliable freight hauling could all flourish out in the barbaric star systems beyond active control of the other noble houses. And of course, where there's money to be made, ordinary people tend to flock, many of whom eventually set down roots. Now, by contrast, 
corporate space has, thus far, created only a handful of deliberate colonies in undeveloped systems that are outside of its established borders. Nonetheless, each of these has been extremely successful. Between company-encouraged planned parenting, which keeps populations at steady numbers, a business culture loath to gamble the safety of expensively trained personnel on risky ventures, and robotic technology that is second to none, corporate space, as a nation, focuses nearly exclusively on automated exploration, mapping, and exploitation of star systems and other galactic resources. Though companies from this supernation have sent out automated expeditions and scouts and built robotic manufacturing networks far from home, few human pioneers have yet to settle down out there. The Montero Transstellar Commercial Federation considers itself risk-averse on this particular point and has yet to feel the need to reevaluate their policy. Finally, and irrespective of the supernations of origin, it's interesting to note that rumors, speculations, and folktales abound throughout all of civilized space regarding refugees, pioneers, and criminals migrating to the unexplored regions. As a result, there is still a great deal of fiction and fancy wrapped up with the facts and fine details of these explorers, trailblazers, and pilgrims of the future. Often they get so mixed together with legend as to become nearly indistinguishable. One very well-documented event, which occurred a few decades before the start of Ejok's adventures, involved the two transport vessels Annabella and Feather. These ships were launched with a combined total of nearly 10,000 crew and pioneers, most in cold passage, along with the stored genetic material for a million more. A homesteading endeavor sponsored by a cooperative created to pool the money and resources of several AIN member states and large industrial outfits the idea of this expedition was for the passengers to remain in suspended animation until a suitable colony system was located. Several such had been scouted by AI vessels over the years, which were placed on the itinerary, and hopes were very high. Tiny courier jump drones were received for nearly a year back in the Alliance with great excitement, until they suddenly stopped coming with no explanation. Forensic study of the message drones performed later implied, but did not conclusively prove, that the couriers had had to make more jumps back to civilization than should have been strictly necessary. Assuming that was true, this meant they'd come from someplace other than where Annabella and Feather had said they were. This, in turn, led to theories about the two ships intentionally flying off to parts unknown, while masking that fact for nearly a year until they were certain they could not be followed. A conspiracy of this magnitude seems unlikely to most expert investigators who suspect a more prosaic, if tragic, explanation. Specifically, that one of the vessels suffered a sudden and horrific accident of some sort, while the other was close enough to be destroyed or permanently disabled as well.
Jump drone evidence has been dismissed by some as being the result of source contamination during their initial recovery, or perhaps misinterpretation of the data, or just plain incompetence. Several financial scandals arose in the wake of the two ships' disappearance, associated with embezzlement and insurance fraud, so evidence tampering can't be ruled out either. Emergency response vessels and rescue crews dispatched to the drone-reported locations of the expedition turned up no signs of any accident. The final disposition of these vessels, therefore, ranks as one of the great unsolved mysteries of this future time. Theories have been endless, ranging from the mundane to the exotic, up to and including that perennial bugbear, alien abduction. This last is a particular favorite of the crank crowd, since it requires no hard evidence of any kind. A more recent scenario, reflecting a freak accident involving a theorized misjump, has also become popular. And while far less outlandish than mythical non-humans, it nonetheless depends upon the idea that, for unknown reasons, both ships shared a single star jump environment that is a single jump bubble, whereupon they suffered a catastrophic misjump that destroyed them. While technically possible, Mission SOP squarely dictated separate jump environments for the two ships expressly to eliminate the extremely remote possibility of this exact sort of incident. No official investigation has ever put this forward as a likely occurrence, but once again, in the face of no conclusive proof one way or the other, it was, and still remains, impossible to disprove. Some proponents of the conspiracy theory speculate that the command crews of the two ships deliberately took them off to parts unknown, with the intention of waking up the pioneers at a much later date. In this scenario, they'd provide concocted evidence to their charges for a bizarre navigation error in the software packages the ships had in common, resulting in an identical gross destination fault with both ships. To date, no one has ever put forth a credible theory as to why these particular people, all of them consummate professionals with exemplary records, would ever do such a thing. Though Annabella and Feather are the most notorious and best documented such case, there have been other stories of lost pioneer ships hailing from all corners of settled space. Some of these have become so shrouded in misinformation and debate over the years as to have passed neatly into the annals of future myth. No matter how bizarre, mysterious, or hotly contested the stories might be, there are always those who speculate that the survivors of these various ships, along with their descendants, still exist as whole populations, colonies which even now, and despite great hardships or strange philosophies, could be creating whole new, possibly bizarre, or even hostile civilizations somewhere out there in the vast unknown. Whatever the case, pretty much the only thing everyone can agree upon is the word unknown itself.
So that's it for Frontier Space, at least for now. I'm sure it will still come up from time to time, and perhaps I have an idea or two for stories concerning it. Or perhaps I don't. We'll all find out in time. Now then, as Long John Silver said, Sit you down and hear the news. Regarding the Star Drifter role-playing game, here I am to give you the latest. Okay, the latest version of the role-playing game is, uh, I'm up to 0.03.2, I think it is. I think that's the same version I was on for the last episode of Voice from the Void. However, I'm nearly finished with it. I'm working on space combat rules, and these would be basic rules. Trying to get it so that, oh, it's similar in structure to the way that the regular skills work in the game. Skills, attributes, that sort of thing. But to also take into consideration what space vessels can do that regular people in ordinary combat cannot. For instance, space vessels have the capacity to do point defense trying to destroy or disable incoming missiles or small craft like fighters or something like that before they can do damage to the ship or boat or whatever is defending itself. In addition to that, of course, we have regular combat where the gunner on the ship, vessel, I'll say ship, vessel, whatever, interchangeably, but the gunner on the vessel will be attempting to shoot and hit another vessel using different types of, of weaponry. Right now I have ship's weaponry, at least for civilian class vessels, broken into three categories basically. DEWs, that is d directed energy weapons, lasers and particle beams and things of that nature. Then missiles and then finally kinetic slugs, that would be machine gun style things. And those are generally reserved for point defense. And that's because most hulls on even, even very small vessels, the hulls of most of them are more or less impervious to what would be considered small arms fire. Now we're still talking about upwards of something like a 20 millimeter cannon. However, Polinium, as I outlined in the last episode, is a super material, and the hulls on most vessels largely impervious to any kind of attack like that. However, things like missiles are not. And by most vessels, I'm not including things like necessarily like small boats or fighters or things like that, which need uh, to cut back a bit on the armor in order to decrease their mass so that they can move around a lot more quickly and with more agility. Quite a few small drones and other types of automated vessels in space, spacecraft, that sort of thing. Those also can be harmed by that sort of weapon. But those sorts of weapons, because they're not guided and are not fast, you know, all things considered in outer space, when you're, I mean, when you're dealing with DEWs, which move at the speed of light, nothing shot from the barrel of a gun is all that quick. So that's not the point of them. The point of these things is to 
take stuff out close, that gets close, to be able to destroy missiles and all that other stuff before it can hit you. But there's also things like artillery rounds and that sort of thing. Basically small missiles or actual ballistic artillery that bursts in a radius not too, too far off from the ship. Now, most of that would probably be fired from a missile tube of some sort as opposed to an actual cannon cannon in outer space, simply because you would have a lot more control over where you're sending it. You can alter its course in, in the middle of things. And yes, I know there are such things as guided ballistic rounds and things like that. They do exist. They're a real thing. But a guided ballistic round is not meant to do the duty of a missile of any kind, a rocket of some sort. It, it's not meant to do that job. And they fall into completely different categories. By and large, ballistic weaponry is going to be for very close combat in, when you're talking about space or possibly, possibly bombardment from orbit on fixed targets on the ground. But that would be a military use and I'm not doing military weapons at this point because, I mean, you got to start somewhere. I'm starting with civilian because that's what EJOC is and that's what he uses by and large. So anyway, that's where I am. I'm nearly done with this version of the rules. And when I'm done, I'm gonna try to put together a game, test these rules out a bit. And in the next episode, I'll let you know how that goes. You know, if, if I've had a game by that point and how it turned out or if I haven't and why I haven't. So yeah, that's it on this. I'm currently working on readying the game for another round of playtesting. This will differ from the previous round in that this time it'll be the basis for a regular game campaign. The players would need to be willing to roll with the punches, as it were, regarding ongoing rule changes, but if I can carve out the time for regular sessions, the Star Drifter universe could prove to be a viable place to spend a few hours with friends. In other news, All He Surveys, Draft 1, is done with a word count of just over 240,000 words. I'm now on to draft two, which promises to be a big job. Progress is progress though, so here's to the future. I hope you found our little foray into the Big Empty entertaining and possibly even inspiring. If not, well, perhaps you'll have better luck with episode 12 when we wade into the history, structure, bureaucracy, and secret backroom deals of corporate space. More than just a big company, yet entirely unlike the other supernations of the galaxy, corporate space stands apart. Known for advanced technology, octopus-like reach into the economies of other nations, and its often opaque, even contradictory business and social policies, this nation is both a rival to and close partner with the governments and super corporations of the other territories. It is admired and feared, conservative but ever-changing and a normal part of the fabric of modern civilization galaxy-wide, while yet being a complete mystery to most of it. 
So brush up on your corporate buzzwords and batten down your spreadsheets because we'll be taking a gander at this odd man out of the big four next time on Voice from the Void. You have been listening to Voice from the Void, written and read by David Collins Rivera. This podcast is a presentation of Cavalcade Audio Productions and Mixed Signals Media. The theme music is a piece called Wicked Ways by Kilobyte. That's K-I-L-L-A-B-Y-T-E, featuring Danica Nadeau, and is available through no copyright sounds at ncs.io slash wickedwaysid. This podcast discusses fictional works and characters and is not meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Voice from the Void is copyright 2019 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Thank you for listening. Take care. Yeah.